0: I want to continue in our study in parables today. And today we're actually going to be looking at two parables. In fact, we're looking at two parables and a confrontation that Jesus has with some Pharisees. And the reason that we're going to do both of these is, even though we're going to focus on one, this is primarily focused around religious leaders. Now, last week, Scott talked about the Good Samaritan. He did a great job breaking down the difference of what our traditional understanding of the story of the Good Samaritan is with what it is actually about, and especially giving you some background about the Samaritans in general. Uh, and one of the things that we see as a, as a string of history through the Old Testament is that following God is not easy. Would anyone agree to that? A couple would, Yes. Following God is not easy. If it were easy, Jesus would not have had to die on the cross for us. And we wouldn't have an entire world rejecting Him. If following God was easy, we would just all do it and it would be great. One of the things that we try to talk about in here is, and and we try to talk about it in such a way that doesn't scare you, but it is reality and that much of the way God moves in us is through difficulty and hardship. Now, that is completely opposite of the way most people spend their lives. Most people spend their lives trying to avoid difficulty and hardship. I do. I like to experience as little hardship as possible on a daily basis. That is my preferred way of living life. God doesn't go along with my way of living life. You know, usually things don't go the way they're supposed to go, right? Now, God is, I know God is at work in our church because throughout our 10 years of existence, whenever we try to do something big and flashy and really cool, it never works. I just assume that's God, right? <laughs> so I don't know that that's true, but we'll just say that. That's why whenever we do the physical you know, things, I'll bring something up here and try to do this big illustration. It always goes bad. I'm not good at those things. Something goes wrong. And, uh, but you know, seriously, one of the ways God works in our lives... It's your difficulty. And whenever we look through the Old Testament, what we find are that those people who God has chosen to reveal himself to and be involved in their lives many times, many times end up walking away from him. And one of the big problems that we see throughout the Old Testament and the New is that religious leaders, people just like myself, pastors of the church, were completely messing up the story of God. In the Samaritans, what ended up happening was a king wanted to come in and kind of protect his people and raise morale and help build up his constituency. And in so doing, corrupted the very religion that gave them life. Whenever we come to this parable and what we're going to be talking about today, this is a direct conversation that Jesus is having on the Sabbath with a group of religious leaders. Pharisees. And what we see over and over again is that he's confronting them. Now, if you will think back to our time when we were talking about um, Protestant, the Great the Reformation, and all the things that happened then, you'll remember that we talked about some of the history of when Jesus arrived on the scene. This is not the idyllic scene. When Jesus was born in a manger, this was not that idyllic, you know, landscape where there's just this cute little barn with this, you know, perfect, you know, Egyptian cotton hay and a little, you know, mini bassinet kind of manger. And then everyone else just whistled and skipped to work. You know, it was not the environment in which Jesus entered into the world. When Jesus entered into the world, the entire fabric of their faith had been influenced and adjusted by their overseers the romans so even those that were in power from the high priest down were appointed by people that did not believe in god but wanted to subjugate a group of people under them now when we go through and we read this this is one of the reasons that the pharisees are constantly trying to challenge jesus because jesus is threatening something that they love and that is control they love to be in control. They love for people to look to them for answers. They love to dictate what's going to happen. And rather than serving in very low, humble places of service, leading people into the presence of God, communicating to others what God would want them to know, they were shoring up for themselves a level of control that the, and wealth that they themselves could be on a pedestal instead of God. So in that environment, Jesus enters the scene and is invited, interestingly enough, to a Pharisee's house for dinner. Now, if you have dinners that go like this, you're probably not going to have many more. This is not the way you want your dinner to go. But if you've got your Bible, I want you to open to Luke chapter 14. We're going to go through this first confrontation, then we're going to look at the first parable very quickly, because I want us to spend our time in the second follow-up parable. All of it is focused on the same topic, all right? So the two parables we're going to look at today are the parable of the wedding feast and the parable of the invited guests. Isn't that a cool title? If you were going to write a book, it would be the parable of the invited guests, isn't it? But in that is where we're going to find a lot of our meat for this morning. So Luke chapter 14, beginning with verse 1, it says, One Sabbath, when he, Jesus, went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, not just any Pharisee, a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy, which was a, would be like a skin condition. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now Jesus is the one who brings it up here. Usually it's the Pharisee that is trying to entrap Jesus. But Jesus sees a person who is suffering and brings it up. And as Scott mentioned last year, a lawyer, or last year, last week, a lawyer was not the kind that you would call if you had a legal dispute. The legal dispute was the law of God. It was someone that would determine what was right in the eyes of God. And so this was a Pharisee and then someone who interpreted the law of God, not the law of the land. And he says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now, they have already been indoctrinated for generations that on the Sabbath you are to rest. That is the time to glorify God, to lift Him up, to not do any work, to just sit. And the example that we have is when God created in the creation account in Genesis where He created for six days and then He rested. And so you were not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. And Jesus continually brought this issue up as to how well are you keeping the Sabbath for its intent. We read about Jesus walking with his disciples and walking across a field and they're hungry. And they start gleaning some of the fruits of the field on the edges, which was customary that they were by law supposed to leave the edges of their field unpicked. So that if those were hungry and in need came by, they could pick what was left over. And Jesus and his disciples came by, were hungry, did this on the Sabbath. And a Pharisee saw him and stopped him and said, What are you doing? You're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. In this particular instance, he's saying, here's a man who needs to be healed. They themselves are not able to heal, but they see any act of Jesus as something that's work. Verse 4 says, They remain silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. One thing I find interesting here is, why is Jesus saying if you have a son or an ox, like they're the same thing, right? So there are some days, if you have sons, you may prefer to have an ox that day, right? But for the most part, a son is all the illustration you need, isn't it? I mean, you talk about one of your kids getting hurt, and is that going to prompt you into action, and you're going to be moved to action, amen? That's just something that's built into everyone who is a loving parent, But in this particular scenario, he's talking not just about a child, but he brings up a livelihood. The ox was representative of their livelihood. If your livelihood was in danger, would you not spring into action to protect your livelihood? I think one of the things that Jesus is trying to unveil under the surface to the Pharisees is the fact that this group of Pharisees were not focused on representing God and uniting the people with God, they were focused on their own livelihoods. And when he confronted them and healed on the Sabbath, they did not know what to say. And if you look back into history, what we see about the Pharisees time and time again, although there were just a couple who were open to the gospel, but over and over again, what we see are people that are scared to death that Jesus is going to turn people away from them. That is their only concern. That is the only thing that they want to have in their lives. They like their positions of power. They like their long phylacteries, which means they dress to the nines like when they walked in the room or down the street, everyone stopped and looked. I mean, they were the royalty of the day. They didn't have you know, actors and actresses. We went, we went down on our trip, we went down to the Walk of Fame in Hollywood. Has anyone ever done that? That is a terrible place to go. I'm just going to tell you this right now. The stars on the floor are cool, but they're all dirty and nasty, and everything else is just raunchy. It's just a terrible, it's the walk of shame is what I call it. But let me tell you, the the celebrities at this time were the Pharisees. They had the wealth. They had the power. They had the ear of the government. And when they walked in, they had the finest clothes, And they loved it. Now to get more insight into kind of the mindset of the Pharisees in action, do you know why they decided to kill Jesus? Does anybody, this is a trick question, but do you know why they decided to kill Jesus? Or in what moment they decided they were going to do that? Does anybody remember? No. It was before that. If you'll read the story of Lazarus and Jesus comes, there are a group of people that are comforting Lazarus's family. And when Jesus shows up and he heals Lazarus and Lazarus walks out of the tomb, the people are amazed. Immediately after that account, if you will read some of those people, Go to some of the religious leaders and say, look at what Jesus has done. And their response is that Jesus is going to turn these people away from us. We need to kill him. Now, I want you to think about this. The religious leaders representing God, God's grace and mercy to people, are scared to death because a man who brought someone back to life If there's any better indication that they did not care about the people that they were supposed to care for, that story should tell us that all they cared about was their power and their influence, and Jesus knew it, which follows immediately into the next parable. When we look at that first confrontation, religious leaders were more concerned with appearing to hold their religious values rather than actually practicing them. I want to look like I've got it together, but here's a man suffering you know what? Let him suffer. We'll get to him tomorrow. We're just resting today. In verse 7, we move on to the parable of the wedding feast. It says, Now he told a parable to those who were invited. Then he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, now I don't know what a place of honor looks like at a dinner at your house. I don't know what it looks like at our house. I think it looks like you're like closer to the food. I think that is probably the place of honor. Other than that, or maybe closer to the bathroom, depending on the kind of meal that it is. I'm not sure, but we don't really have a place of honor. But you can just imagine this table is set up in such a way that the higher esteemed are in certain places and everyone else had to sit back behind them. Verse 8, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast... "'Do not sit down in a place of honor, "'lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. "'And he who invited you both will come and say to you, "'Give your place to this person, "'and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. "'But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place.'" So that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is one of the, this is one of the most difficult truths for any person to accept. And it is one of the reasons that so many people know the gospel but don't ever respond to it. There's a reality about the gospel that is uncomfortable for me and for you. And it involves this level of humility and brokenness. And Jesus knew it. When Jesus quoted the the prophecy in Luke chapter 4, it's one of my favorite places in Scripture. He says, I have come for the poor, for the oppressed, for the captive, for the sick. He says, why do the well need a doctor? It's the sick that need a doctor. And Jesus consistently goes out. This is one of the only times he's actually found in this type of setting. He consistently goes out to be with the people that were rejected by all of those in power and influence. If we look in our culture today, just ask yourself, who are the rejected in our society and in our culture? Who are those that are on the fringes on the outside that we ourselves would not necessarily associate with? Who are the people that are different from us and they don't live in the same kind of neighborhoods that we live in and they don't talk the same way that we talk and you know they don't see the world the same way that we see the world. Maybe they even have different political opinions than we do. Who are those people on the fringes that are not good enough to do life with us? See it's so easy for us to fall into this trap where we begin to determine someone's better than someone else. Don't we, we do it from the time that we're little kids from the time that we're little kids, we become competitive and we start looking around at all the other kids and we begin thinking about, well, I need to be like them, or they've got nicer stuff than me, or more people like them, and nobody likes me, and Then we get over into the middle school years and and then you really begin struggling with some of the the social levels and how am I going to fit in where I want to fit in in the social levels because that is I think one of the very first places, though, it seems to be getting younger, but that's one of the first places where social levels become very evident. I don't know about you, I never I, I never fit in in middle school. Did anybody else, does anybody else, that's their story? I'm not sure that anybody truly fits in in middle school, I'll be honest, but I really didn't. I, I, just Middle school for me was, I just want to survive this, right? I just want to survive this, and I did, and I had some good friends that came out of it, but... But it's a hard time when you enter in and you realize that the world is set up in such a way that some people are elevated and some people are shunned. The reality is, usually the people that realize that's how it's set up are those who are being shunned, not those who are in those higher tiers. They feel it. They experience it. As we look through this story... What Jesus is saying is, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. There is is an act that goes on within our lives that leads to brokenness and humility that is the way that we are ushered into the presence of God. This is uncomfortable because nobody wants that. Who among us wants to feel humble? Now, we may be willing to sit back in, in the background and say, well, you know what? You all don't think I'm much, but I'm better than you. I'm just not saying anything. And we give some kind of false appearance of humility, but deep inside, we're still judging all those around us. But true humility says, I am not the most valuable thing or person in the world, and that in and of itself Is very dangerous in our society because whenever you come to that place, that is the place that you meet God. It's one of the reasons we read in Scripture, he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven. Not because being rich is bad, not because the fact that you're rich, you're not going to be able to know Christ or Christ doesn't want to know you, and that heaven is really just for poor people. But the difference is when you are wealthy, and listen, we have lived, Deidre and I, we have lived in lots of different. Le- we've, I don't know that we've, we would ever say we've been wealthy, <laughs> but there are a lot of people that would probably say we are wealthy based on how they live. But we've lived where, hey, I, we can't like go out to eat this week and we need to conserve everything or we may not be able to eat this week. When we first started out being married, everything was tight. You know, I'm, we know how it feels whenever you're just hoping this paycheck makes it to the next one, right? When those bills start coming in and that credit card starts burning in your pocket, I can have this right now. I don't have the cash, but I've got this card right now. We know how that feels. There's a desperation in you when that balance goes down, isn't there? There's kind of a desperation, like, I don't know if we're going to make it. And even if we do make it, this is probably going to happen next pay period too. There's something very different in the way that you respond to the world when you're not sure you're going to make it versus I have all the resources I need. I have everything I need. I can pay for anything that i need to happen i mean i've got it covered i've earned that money i can make it work i can make it stretch we can go do whatever we want we are just set now there's nothing wrong with having wealth however when our wealth becomes the place that replaces our hope then we cannot know christ And the reality is if you've never experienced in any way humility or brokenness in your life, you very well could live your life without wanting to ever know God, just because you've got it covered. For the Pharisees, they've got it covered. They're not worried about the people that don't have. They're not worried about the people that are in those lower social tiers. They're not even worried about those who are sick and hurting. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then he moves into his second parable let me say this first. It is impossible to know Christ without repentance, and it is impossible to repent without humility and brokenness. Repentance is that thing that none of us wants to acknowledge until we've experienced the blessing that true repentance brings. There is something that happens when you become right with God, I know that's a weird church phrase. When I say you become right with God, that means that you no longer feel guilty before God. There is a beautiful moment of peace and rest that comes in those moments. That comes from repentance. But repentance requires us to say, I don't have it all together. In Matthew 20, this is how Jesus describes it. Jesus called... Them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am here demonstrating what it takes to take a lowly position, because in order to walk with God, you must take a lowly position as well. Not that you will stay there. But the only way that you will retain any position other than that is by the hand of God Himself, not your own efforts. If we pick up the parable of the invited guests, or sometimes it's called the great banquet, verse 12, it said, He said also to the man who invited him, which by the way, this is where the dinner party is already uncomfortable, right? Right? So he walks in, and first off the bat, he says, you know, you all would not want me to heal this guy. I'm going to do it. Second off the bat, look at all you people in the place of honor. Listen, if you really knew who God was, you wouldn't seek the place of honor. You would seek the place of least honor. And then he launches into this. I just, No wonder that he didn't get invited to more places. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet... Do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. lest they also invite you in return and be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Verse 15. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And you would think Jesus would say, well, amen to that. But instead, he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, "I have bought five see, I lost my place. Um, I have bought five yoke of oxen, there we go, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused." And another said, "I have, a, have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come." So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, "Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city." And bring in the poor, and the crippled, and the blind, and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges, and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet." I'll tell you when we read a parable like this we are we are tempted to put ourselves in one of the positions of people that had been invited I'm either the the first group that was invited or the second group that was invited or the third group that was invited and usually we'll put ourselves in the the most favorable group right which was like the second group I don't want to be in the first group those people are who invited and and just were too busy to come, had other things that were more important to them. I really don't want to be in the third group because kind of the riffraff that nobody else wanted. So I think I'll be in the second group. But when we read this parable, that's the low-lying fruit. That's the easy stuff to pull out and to close our Bibles and go to bed and feel, oh, I feel good about my faith and my walk with Christ. And yet that is not at all what Jesus was trying to say to them. What's interesting is this whole parable is not talking about just a population in general. He's speaking to religious leaders. He's speaking to religious people. In other words, he's speaking to people who know the gospel. We're not just talking about those outside who have never heard the gospel. We're talking about the context of just about every person you will come in contact with Every single day of your life if you live in this country. They know the gospel. And the time has come. The invitation is out. Three primary things I want you to see from this. And then we're going to quit and go have some fun at the park. First one is this. God is inviting all people. All people through the work of the church to know the glory and blessings of God. There is not a single person who is not invited. The banquet it's clearly God talking about a relationship with Christ and entering into the kingdom of God. That is the banquet. That is what's being pulled together. That is what Jesus is preparing for. He continually talks about the relationship that we have with God as a wedding where he is the bride, we are the groom, or he is the groom, we are the bride, and the church is the bride of Christ. Whenever we look at uh, Paul's teaching about marriage, we find that the illustration of marriage is often about the relationship between Christ and the church. So this illustration of the banquet, of the wedding feast, and of marriage is about God's relationship with his people. This parable is not just about having good relationships with others or inviting people to your house. It's about how do we truly know and walk with God. And I think this is one of the crucial problems that we have in our 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 Christianized culture today is that we know so much about Jesus, but yet we don't really know what it feels like to walk with him every single day. We walk with him on Sundays when we come. We walk with him, you know, at certain different times when he just happens to come, you know, come to our minds. But there are so many people today that are struggling with this reality that they are not experiencing true life in Christ, and yet they know everything about the church. This week I had an opportunity, I've got a group of guys that I get together with, we get together once a month, and it's, uh, my friend has coined the term visionary friendships, that's what we are, we're visionary friendships. What that means is that uh, we have a purpose for our gatherings, not just to hang out, not just to catch up, not just to high five, not just to get lunch, but we have a purpose for our gatherings, and we get together. And we pray, we talk about what's going on in our lives, we, we vi- envision what God wants to do in our city. and we represent all different ministries around, some in churches, some in, in parachurch organizations. And, uh, and so we get together and we just pray. So we, we met this week, and you know, I've been gone for, for you know a couple of weeks. And uh, one, of, one of my friends, who's a minister in a, a large church here in town, an incredible, dynamic church here in town, and, and he just said, you know, we, we, we got on this topic of humility and brokenness. He said, you know, after these last couple of weeks, it really feels real. I said, what do you mean, last couple of weeks? I was in California. I was a pretty awesome couple of weeks. If that's not, you know, kingdom of God, no, I'm kidding. But, <laughs> but what I did not know, was in our area, in the last two weeks, two ministers took their lives. A youth pastor and a worship pastor. Different churches. Each took their lives on the same week. I didn't know that. I don't know what they were going through. I don't know their story. I did not know them. But many around the table knew them. And when we look at something like that, I just have to ask ourselves, how does a person who was supposed to spend all of their time focused on God, right? Get to a place of despair, discouragement, and depression that they want to end their life. And the churches they were involved with, you would know, you would know at least one of them. How do you get to this place? where well, you're devoting your life to God, but you feel absolutely like life is not worth living. And I think the problem is, we have found a way to feel like we are doing good things with God, and yet God is not a part of them. Now, even in the midst of suffering and hardship, and one of the, those are the ways that God usually teaches me, let's be honest, usually teaches you too. James doesn't say we will, we will reach a place of despair and depression and discouragement. James says whenever those times come, we will develop the ability to have joy in them because we will see the fruit of the hardship, not just the pain of the hardship. Now, I don't know if there were external circumstances for these, for these two individuals. I don't know if there was some you know, chemical issues within them. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. But they're not the only ones. And when we look at ministers across the board, what I find interesting is when I entered seminary a couple of years ago, when I entered seminary like 20 years ago, seminaries were boasting their highest level of enrollment ever. I mean, tons of people wanted to go into ministry. Now, the statistics even then weren't good because like one in five dropped out within two years. So like a lot of them shouldn't have gone to seminary probably. But today, few people, our seminaries are, are, are just literally decaying because nobody wants to go into ministry now. And, and part of that is I, I probably a good thing. Some of those people that would have dropped out aren't even going, and that's probably a good thing. But what's not good are that those people that feel called to lead people to know God are walking away from the church and walking away from ministry because they don't see that it has any value in our current culture, even within our current church culture. I hate being a naysayer. I'm good at it, but I hate doing it, right? Are you, is anybody else like that? You know, I can see problems a mile away. Sometimes it takes me a while to see solutions, but I can see problems a mile away. And, you know, that can be discouraging in and of itself to see a bunch of problems and not necessarily have the solution yet. I, so I, I'm always careful about being a naysayer. But we're seeing this. we're seeing this nationwide. We're seeing churches struggling nationwide. We're seeing discouragement depression within the church happening nationwide. We're seeing people dropping out of the church nationwide. We're seeing people saying, this is not a a truly important part of my life. We're seeing that all over our nation. And the reality is that you can do a lot of good church stuff... And not walk with Jesus, because I know this: when you walk with Jesus, you want to keep walking with Jesus. I've never known anybody who truly had an experience with Christ who said, "Yeah, I could, I could do without that." It just doesn't happen. It's like finding your true love and saying, "No, that was that was cool." You know, it doesn't happen. But that's what we're seeing, and. And what Jesus is addressing to them, and this is, this is what's crucial for us to understand, this is not happening all over the world. This is happening all over our Christian nation. In other parts of the world, churches are going bananas. They're going crazy. I mean, they're exploding. The gospel is spreading in some of the places that you don't know about because the state-run media, won't, don't, they don't want you to know about it. For the exact same reason that the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus because they may lose control. So as we look at this, we have to remember that this is a problem that so, churches had from the very beginning. This was a problem before Jesus arrived on the scene. This was a problem after Jesus arrived on the scene. Interestingly enough, this is even a problem after Jesus is, is resurrected and gone to heaven. As we read in Revelation, you'll find a series of seven letters to churches in the book of Revelation. And did you know in five of them, do you know what the central message to the church is? Repent. But see, when we enter into the church system here, we're like, repent, get baptized, which is what we're going to do today. Got that done? Covered. I'm good. Now let's just wait for the the big train to heaven. And yet, even in the book of Revelation, when Jesus appears to John in a vision, and he writes these seven letters to the churches, (coughs) five of them, the central message is you need to repent. So as we read things like this, what we have to be so crucial in understanding is God wants to invite all people to know the glory and blessings of God. However, we have to be so crucial to understand that Jesus is what we are searching for. Jesus is the thing that we are searching for. And that place of honor is a place of Christ. And that place of glory is, a, is the place of Christ. And that place where all of our focus and energy should first go, that is to Christ, not to anything else. And what we see in that first group in this parable is a group of people, and you can list any number of reasons. <clears throat> I got married, I got a field I just bought, you know, I got... I, I think the... Um, Through the years, I've had different people. It's always fun. When you're a pastor, if you've never been a pastor, you don't want to be one. That may be another reason why nobody's going to seminary. But um, when you meet people in public, it's so awkward. Not always. You people, you aren't. You all are great. You just treat us like we're normal people, which I can't tell you how much of a blessing that really is. But in other churches we've served, I was the pastor, and Deidre was the pastor's wife. And so we had to kind of, we had to act the right way, you know, and I'd rarely act the right way. So it it often, I would have private meetings later with the, you know, ruling group of the church about my behavior or something. I'm not, no joke, I had many of those, you know, Monday morning deacon conversations. They were wonderful. And, um, but we, I was the pastor and and she was the pastor's wife. I remember one time that that may but it became so crucial and, and for us to understand was one time we were just, we had some friends and um, you know I think Deidre came up and saw them out in public and we're normal people. I mean, if you come hang out with us a little while, you'll find out how normal we really are. She walked up and, and was introduced to, well, this is my pastor's wife. Well, that doesn't sound like a big deal, and, but for us, that's like, I'm not, I'm not the pastor. I'm not the pastor's wife. I'm Mark. This is Deidre. We're your friends. We do life together. I've been in your house. You've been in my house. I'm not, I'm not a title. But whenever I often run into people, usually what I hear are why they're not coming to church. <laughs> they're always fun to hear, and they're always awkward conversations. And I smile, okay, okay, you know, okay. Uh, the worst excuse I ever got, and I'll be honest, this is just talks about the authenticity level of journey. Um, I had a person one time say, I'm sorry I've not been at church. Man, we've just been having some great parties on Saturday night, and we have had to sleep it off on Sunday morning. And I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> that's when I'm not Mark. I'm, I'm the pastor, right? You know, that's when I want to put that other hat on. I'm like, okay, tell your friends that, but don't tell me that, you know. You've partied too much the night before, but at least you're honest. I mean, that on, that's beautiful that you're, I didn't, you know, but, uh, you know, hey, that's that second and third group that Jesus is talking about. <laughs> but there's all kinds of reasons why Jesus doesn't maintain that highest level within our lives. We've all got excuses, right? Why something else is more important in the moment And so this first group and what is just so, I don't know, it's just so terrible and and so hard to understand is that they actually feel that they have something better to do than to be with Jesus. Something more important than to spend time with Him. You cannot experience the presence of Christ if you are spending all of your time with everyone or everything else you can't do it. I remember when Deidre and I started dating, I was going to UT in Knoxville. She was going to Carson Newman in Jefferson City. She was about 45 minutes away. And I had lots of friends in college before I started dating Deidre. Because once we started dating, I spent all my time driving up to Carson Newman and spending time with her. And gosh, when we started dating, we just wanted to spend time together. Have you ever dated somebody that didn't want to spend time with you? Probably not long, right? Amen? <laughs> Probably not long. And yet, could anyone look at our relationship with Christ and tell that he's really important to us? So I have to ask myself that question all the time. When I read passages like this, that's where my mind goes. What am I putting in front of Christ today, and there's all kinds of things that we can put in front of Christ. We can put our, our careers in front of Christ, we can put our loved ones in front of Christ. we can put w- the accumulation of wealth in front of christ we we can put entertainment in front of christ that's one thing I did notice when we were traveling on the west coast is every billboard just about was about, was, was was an ad for some netflix show or new movie coming out it is very clear that the idol on the west coast is entertainment i mean that's everything out there of course that's where it's all born and where a lot of the money is and of course they're going to advertise there but the the idol on the west coast is entertainment but that idol is sweeping through our nation just ask ourselves scott mentioned last week you know what if we spent as much time on you version as we spend on Facebook? How much more adept at God's word would we be? So as we look at these things, we have to ask ourselves, where do I really fit? There are some days I fit in the excuse category. Clearly. Fully. God, I'm not spending time with you, but you know, I got a reason. I got other things going on. I just need to relax. I got too much stuff happening. I read 2 days of my reading plan yesterday. That's got me caught up. Now, if I walked in and my it to Deidre on one morning and said, "Deidre, I talked to you twice yesterday. I do not want to talk to you today." How do you think that would go over? <laughs> yeah, she might. Some Someday she might be. That's fine with me because I don't want to talk to you either. <laughs> you've been you've been watching us, haven't you? Yeah. When you love someone, you spend time with them. Talking to one of these guys in our group this week, and gosh, it's a church, and I don't want to mention it, you know, I don't know why, I probably probably could, but um, they're like, they're blowing and going. I mean, I see their stuff all the time. They got some incredible things. I mean, I'm already planning to go to some of their events at their church. I love you guys, but I'm going to their church some too. So that's, I mean, they're just, I just, I love those people. And um, he's like, yeah, you know, a regular attender in our church is now once every six weeks. I'm like, no, 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 no. I, that's, that's not your church. I see your church. Everybody comes to your church. You know, I'm doing the math. If they're coming once every six. How many people are coming to your church? If this church coming once every six weeks? But that's, that's where it is everywhere, and that's where we feel it here too. Now, let me be very careful and say the fact that you attend a church service does not mean that you have a close, intimate relationship with Christ or the fact that you did not attend a church service on any given day, that you do not have a close and intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. So let me be very careful about where this goes. That's not where I'm going with this. Let me, let me do say this. What are the things that become more important than spending time with God's people and in worship of God? What are the things that become more important now, if you've got to work on Sunday morning, let me just tell you, please go to work. Because I don't have room in my house for you when you get fired, all right? You can come for a couple of hours, but a couple of days, we're going to be a hot mess, right? We've got, already got six people in our house plus a dog. I mean, we are full up. But there are many things that we elect to choose that become more important than Him. You cannot experience the presence of Christ if you're spending all your time with everyone or everything else. You know, Jesus says this in Matthew 10 again. He says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds, uh, finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his, la- his life for my sake will find it. That was, again, one of those... Oh, punching the gut kind of verses. We read that and we're thinking, "Yes, I just I need to give my life for Christ. I need to just give everything over for him." And yet somewhere within us we're thinking, "Oh, this is so hard." I got so much I got to give up. I remember before I became a Christian, I remember thinking I was a, I was about thirteen years old and I had grown up in the church, had been baptized, and I, I had said I was a Christian. But yet I really did not want to follow the ways of Jesus because none of my, none of my friends that I wanted to hang out with did. I wanted to do what they did. And in my mind, I worked up this scenario: the average person lives until they're eighty-four. Uh, I can do whatever, but my dad I, and mom at the time were about 45, I thought, gosh, by, I mean, they're pretty much dead, so I, if I, I, I know, I was 13, I was 13, now I clearly feel differently, but <laughs> I fit this number in my head that I'll get my life together when I'm 45, Because nobody has fun by the time they're 45. All the fun has been aged out of them. I know it's not true. I was 13. But I'm serious. That was a conversation in my head. And it took many things in my life beginning to fall to the wayside before I said, I need him now. I need him now. I can't wait till then. Never occurred to me, well, people die before they reach 45. What is more important in your life than Him? When I read this, I just wonder, why do we put more emphasis on the life that we must give up instead of the life that we gain because of Christ? Gosh, He gives us peace, purpose, wholeness, fullness, walks with us. He pulls back the veil so that we can see all of His creation. I couldn't help but when we were... I was going to put some pictures up from our trip, but then I just felt like that was not very pastoral, but I wanted to. One in particular I took, we went to Griffith's Observatory in uh, in L.A., and it, was just, and it was fantastic. And I took these incredible, we got there right at sunset. And so their Hollywood sign was over here to our right, and then this, it's beautiful. If you follow me on Facebook, you probably saw it, this beautiful sunset is just coming. Is just. Are the suns going down right around the mountain? It's just incredible. And all I could think of was all of this light shining out onto the city, who is just destroying itself, and they don't see the light that is available to them. Cause you know what? I didn't see many of. I didn't see many churches. There were not many churches. Come here, it's like you know, turn by that church, then a left at that church over there, and a right of that church, and you'll find the first gas station, right? (laughs) But not there. There's a church, yeah, there's a church, uh maybe a couple of towns over. You know, not really. There are more churches than that. But but seriously, this image for me, when I look out and see this beauty, I just think this is what God has created. When I look over, one of the things that I just so love, and I told my family that I just love so much about our trip, was the diversity that we got to see. And Deidre and I had experienced that when we lived in D.C. We loved living in D.C. We were just we were a minority. Literally, there were only about 15% of the population in our community were, were Caucasian where we lived in D.C. Moving to Chattanooga, one of the, the conversations we had to have before we moved to Chattanooga was the fact of, do we want to raise our kids in a less diverse Place. Now, there's a lot of diversity in Chattanooga, but there are, you have to go find it. It's not just in your face everywhere you go. I find that so refreshing because it reminds me that whenever I look around at diversity, how incredibly creative and ingenious God is. It just, it's amazing. The, I love the mountains. I love to go backpacking, uh, not as much. It's harder now than it used to be, right? I love to go hiking. I love to go sit in a picnic table and look at beautiful stuff even more now. But you know, I love going to the outdoors in the Smoky Mountains. I love it. I love the Smoky. There's, no, there's nothing like the Smoky Mountains anywhere else in the world. I love it. But yet when you go over there, the com- topography is completely different. And I just see, gosh, God, you are amazing how creative and diverse you are. You wanted to have different parts of this same continent look completely different. It's amazing. Do you spend your life walking through your day looking for what God is doing in your midst in that moment? Or is your mind on other things? On Sunday mornings, is your mind on, oh, do we go to church? Do we not go to a church? Do we dress up? Do we not? Stop fighting and y'all get dressed so we can go to church. I know that's what goes on in some of these houses, right? Because it does in ours. <clears throat> or is your mind on the fact of, I'm coming to worship my king? And then, let's take it another level, do you have that same thought on Monday morning, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning? How about Wednesday at lunch and Wednesday at dinner? You see, when you find something of great value, it's something that you want to spend a lot of time with. The last thing I want to point out for this, and then we're going to quit for today, is the reality that this parable goes a little bit deeper still. The third thing that I think is crucial for us to understand is whenever we understand the goodness of God and we understand what God is offering us to those who know Him and to follow Him, is that we ourselves are the ones that He's sending out to gather the people into the banquet. When He says, go out and find Everybody that you can out in the hedges and the byways and the highways and everywhere and bring them in so my house will be filled. Guess who he's sending out to do that? Us. That's us. That's us. You are called to take the goodness of Christ to everyone you can every single day of your life. Now, if you don't believe that Jesus is of the greatest treasure, the greatest value of anything that you could ever possibly have then you are going to think, "Ooh, I don't know about that. I remember when I became a Christian, they handed me a track. The track was a stair step of ways you're supposed to grow in your faith, and the very last step was share your faith with somebody else. I was like, I'm going to take forever to get to that top step. I can do all these other steps, but I'm taking forever before I get to that top step. And yet when you know that Jesus is the greatest thing that you can have, you want other people to know it. And that's who we are called to go out to. Who are you reaching out to? I'll be honest. As I sit and talk with other pastors, most churches are trying to reach the first group of people that are making up excuses. I'll be honest. They look good. They sound good. They come and they want to get involved. They want to serve. They'll give. I mean, they want the people that have it together, those prime honor people first. And I'll tell you, those are the folks that are leaving the church. And so we have to, as we look ahead to how the world is changing around us, recognize that Jesus has not called us to chase the group of people that do not want to put him first in their lives. He wants us to chase the people who are struggling with brokenness and humility within their lives because that's where you meet Christ. But I will tell you this. You will be out in public. I'm not at church, man. I got so drunk Thursday, Saturday night, whatever. I got so drunk, I just had to sleep it off. You'll have those conversations. And when you have those conversations, you'll go, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So who can you invest in? If we go back to the parable of the wedding feast, don't go to those people that can give you something back. Go to the people that can't give you anything, and God will bless you. I'm going to tell you if you want to reach out to truly lost people, it is a messy, messy place. We have found that time and time again here. It is a messy, messy place. If you're a person who's truly lost and you're just, you have cleaned yourself up and you don't want anybody to know, I want you to know you can fit in here. But it takes time, and it takes people, and it is long-suffering because a person doesn't just do an about-face very often. Many times it takes us walking alongside of them, inviting them, being here among them. So I would encourage you to find those people in your life that you can invest in. Matthew 9, 35, Jesus says this, We ourselves are the laborers to go out into the harvest. Last thing I want to say. Is the kingdom of God is open to those who see the supreme value of knowing Christ and following him. It's open to anyone who would come. He issues the invitation to the banquet for all those invited guests to everybody. There are those who are going to reject, but the, the opportunity is there if he is of supreme value to you, I don't expect you to be perfect because I'm not perfect. I don't expect you to always think about him every moment of your life. I don't think about him every moment of your life, but there's not a facet of my life that he doesn't influence, and there shouldn't be a facet of your life that he doesn't influence. You have the opportunity to grow and to be more. What we're doing today in baptism is just a step It is the initial step in following Christ. Jesus himself was baptized, and incredibly, John said, Oh, I'm not even worthy to baptize you. But he said, No, you have to baptize me. And then he told his disciples, Go and baptize those. As you're making disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. If you're here today and you're being baptized, I want to say this to you about what we're doing today. Number one, this does not make you saved. Okay? That's a buzzword in the church. That does not make you saved. There is only one thing that can bring you into a saving relationship with Jesus. And he says that if we will confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You can do that without ever being baptized. However, I will tell you this, you cannot faithfully follow Jesus without being baptized. Why? Because Jesus commanded that the disciples would go out and they would baptize believers in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is an act of obedience, but it is also an act of alignment with the life of Christ because he says, just as I have died and risen again, you must die and rise again. And we do that symbolically through the waters of baptism. So if you want Jesus Christ to be your Savior and you've never been baptized listen do it do it today i'll have an extra shirt for you you may want to run home and grab a swimsuit or something or a towel that's fine but get it taken care of don't think that just because you get baptized life's going to be easy that all of a sudden you're just covered in this magical film that nothing bad's going to touch you anymore it's not the way it works it is an act of obedience for us to put our lives in alignment with Christ, and it is the very first one that you will do in a lifetime of aligning yourself with Him. So I invite you to be a part of that with us. If you're not being baptized, just in your, your family, you're, you're, you're our family here. Come and celebrate with us. Come and eat some hot dogs with us. I know they're not filet mignon, but you know what? A good hot dog in the park is a lot of fun. And... If you got kids, there's a brand new playground over there. They can go play in the playground. If you want to come swim, come swim. We, it, listen, part of being in the body of Christ is having fun together. So I hope you all all come out and join us. If you are interested in being baptized, I want you to, to come talk to me. And uh, we can take care of that today. All right, would you pray with me? Father, God, I thank you for your love and the fact that you have opened the banquet to all of us. None of us were deserving. None of us were good enough. None of us were without sin. All of us were in need of your sacrifice and the salvation that comes through your blood. Father, I pray for those in this room, and they've been struggling, and other things have been constantly distracting them and coming up of more value than you in their lives. And I pray that you would not put upon them just a moment of guilt, but instead a freedom that can come and just putting you in the place of priority in their lives that wholeness that comes in knowing that we are walking in step with you. I pray that you would help us as a church to be a light in this world. I pray that you would reach out through us to those that are on all of the fringes of our community that no one else even wants to talk to and we have an opportunity to share the gospel with. I pray that we would not be in that group of people that we've always got something better to do than to spend time with you. And Father, I thank you that despite our sin, despite our own personal foolishness, you have still saved us, you have called us, you have loved us and invited us to be your brothers and sisters. ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.